In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. So my friends, I'd like to speak first of all to you, first to introduce my topic by, by just pointing out something that Archbishop Lefebvre used to point out, and that is, it's possible to believe like a Catholic and not to think like a Catholic. Those, those are two different things. And the Archbishop would point this out in reference to people who had converted to the faith. So after having spent many years in a non, non-Catholic religion with the thoughts, patterns that went with that, the doctrinal system, the moral system, the approach to life, the person undergoes a conversion, and it can be a very, very sincere conversion. That's not the question. But nevertheless, the Archbishop would point out that it still is it's another process to, to begin to realign the way of approaching certain things, the ways of thinking, um, in light of, penetrated by, that, that revelation that the person has come to accept as, as taught by our Lord and, and revealed by our Lord and, and taught by the church. So it is possible. It is possible. And it's not only, this is my own thought for converts, but for those of us who grow up in the English-speaking world, it's not a Catholic world. And insofar as it's a Christian world at all, it's a Protestant Christian world. So the very air we breathe is not a Catholic air. And so even if we've in fact been Catholic our whole lives, nevertheless, the environment that we've lived in is largely not Catholic. And, and the patterns of thought that we, we just imbibe from our environment will probably need some adjusting. And that is a process that we need to, to commit ourselves to. So I mention that because it's a good introduction to what I'm about to speak about, and that is one element in a Catholic way of thinking is to see one's self as being surrounded by an order of things that God has created, that the world around us, the nature of things, is ordered. It is, it is as if God has embedded or incarnated, if you will, his, his own wisdom and his own goodness into the world around us, not in a random sort of way, but in a harmonious, structured, ordered way. And we are supported, in fact, by this order of things. And that order of things is composed of both the natural order and the supernatural order. So the natural order, the, the laws of nature that we know about, but the laws of human nature as well. How a human being, with all the powers of his or her soul, is, is meant to live. And, and how that individual fits into the family and how the family fits into society. And the, the principles of the natural law. You know, all of that, all of that is part of the natural order. And then God, in his generosity, created something new on top of the natural order, a supernatural order which includes these truths of revelation that we would not know, these deeper truths about God, his nature, what he's done for us, that we wouldn't know if he hadn't revealed them. The the sacraments are part of the supernatural order, each with its own role, each with its its own grace that it gives 
working according to certain principles. The church herself, as a society, extended it through the whole world. That church is part of the supernatural order. The principles of the spiritual life. And there are principles of the spiritual life. We don't, we don't grow in the life of grace in a random sort of way. No, just like with any life, it needs certain things and it grows according to certain principles. Our duty of state, our own personalized path to holiness, it's an ordered thing. We don't simply chart our own path. We, we have that path revealed to us. We have duties of state. And that's not only an organized, ordered path to our own holiness, but we are part of the order of things, and our own duty is our way of making the particular unique contribution to the salvation of the world that, that God has planned. So we're, we're surrounded by this order of things. And that order of things, my friends, that order of things is benevolent. Okay? We must not see it as an oppressive system. We have to see it as, as a life-giving order, which has a direction and a momentum. That order, if you will, it has an agenda. It has somewhere it wants to go. And it wants to carry us there. And that's towards our holiness but towards our happiness. The order of things that surrounds us from which we draw life is benevolent. And to draw that life, we have to connect with it. It is not for us to invent an order of things or to pretend that there's another one and then to sort of creatively decide how we want to live. No, it's there. And we just have to connect with it to leverage it. But in practice, be careful. We connect with it, we engage with it by submitting to it. And that's very important. We connect with it, we engage with it by submitting to it. So very briefly, let's just see what we've already discussed, right? So there is a difference between believing as a Catholic, even very, very sincerely, and thinking like a Catholic. We can believe as a Catholic and think like a Protestant. And that's very easy, especially in the English-speaking world, as I said. And one of the elements in thinking like a Catholic is to see the order around us as an order, as something benevolent instituted by God. It's what we learn in the Ignatian retreats. You know, if you think back to those retreats you've been on, that first conference, the very first one, is the principle and foundation. Man is created to praise, reverence, and serve God, and thus save his soul. You remember that. But the second conference is on the use of creatures. Because if we've been created to praise, reverence, and serve God, and thus save our soul, everything else has been created to help us praise, reverence, and serve God. To lead us to the achievement of our goal. So it's even, it's even there in the Ignatian system that we're surrounded by a created order, natural order and supernatural order, both. And that order is benevolent. It gives us life if we would but engage with it, which means in practice 
submitting to it. That's where we are so far. Now the second point I have to mention, because it's, it's something that I think we experience but we don't realize. And we are certainly don't realize that it's part of the plan. Okay? And it's this. As we go about the business of living our Christian life and moving down that path to our holiness and our happiness, God is going to change the way he deals with us. His approach to us is going to change. It's going to change more than once, but it is going to change. And the most important change is as we move from sort of the beginning stage to the next stage. There will be other stages after that, okay? But the beginner stage to the next stage, that transition is the most important one to, to, re to recognize, or not to recognize necessarily to say it started here and it ended there, but to be aware that there is going to be a change, there is going to be a transition. So I give you an example. When we first have our personal conversion, whether that be a conversion in the strict sense of the term into the Catholic faith, or, or whether it simply be when we begin to take our faith seriously for the first time, perhaps. When we have that conversion, God is going to give us a lot of consolation. And again, you know from those Ignatian retreats that you've been on, consolation is when doing the Christian life is easy, it's delightful. It's, it's not as though there aren't still sacrifices, but, but we almost relish them, or we do relish them. Prayer is enjoyable. Even, even those efforts we have to make, we're full of enthusiasm for them. And it's almost like we're just being swept along in a strong current towards God. Right? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And God does that on purpose, because... He knows how weak we are. And when we first make that courageous decision to follow him, well, we need to be carried for a time. But there comes a moment when those consolations don't come as frequently, when prayer becomes dry, when the sacrifices lose something of their beauty, at least as far as we can see them, they don't seem as beautiful or as inspiring as they were before. And this is a dangerous moment because, you see, there is something we might call a beginner's bias, a bias that a beginner has simply because they've gotten used to God dealing with them in a certain way. Okay, And, and that's perfectly understandable. The person when they first converted, they had this flood of consolations, this torrent of consolations. And so, of course, in their mind, they associate the consolation with their progress. There was indeed a period of time when the more courageous they were in committing to this decision, to this conversion, the more consolation they received. And so, there's that beginner bias. Progress means consolation. And when the consolation begins to dry up, the soul goes into a little panic because they think 
They must be off track. They must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. And they begin to try to find their way again. In fact, they're right where they're supposed to be. But they think they're off in the bush somewhere, and so they go looking for the road again. And of course, the way they think they're going to find it is by finding what gives them consolation once again. And so, again, it's a, it's a bias. Instead of looking for what virtue would demand of them and saying, okay, that's the path. This is the path of virtue. This is how I should practice virtue. They, they look for what provokes those consolations. They end up chasing consolation with the impression, completely understandable, that that's the sign that they're back on the path. But in fact, it's then that they go off the path. It's one example. Another example, which will bring us back to that first topic that I wanted to to speak about today, another beginner's bias that people have is because when they first convert, they begin to realize how upside down the world is, how evil the world is, how much error there is in the world. Before their conversion, when they were living a a more or less worldly lifestyle, everything seemed fine. Everyone's having fun. No one's too worried about anything. Salvation, however they understood that, is more or less guaranteed, unless you're one of those really, really bad people that we don't even associate with. you know. And then they convert, and they realize, wow, I was wrong. There's a lot of evil in the world. There's a lot of things wrong with the world. Which is all true enough. And, and this, again, creates that beginner bias scenario. Because when the person begins to convert, for a period of time, the more evil they see, the more progress they're making. It's true for a time. Because for a time, their understanding, as it grows, is going to reveal to them more evil that they had not seen before. But I hope you can see the danger, because it's a beginner's bias. The person, just as they might want to be reassured by provoking consolation, so they want to be reassured by seeing more evil today than they saw yesterday. And so they begin to see evil even where it isn't. Or they begin to judge the worst case, and there they can violate charity or even justice. If something could be wrong, it must be. If someone could be bad, they must be. It's a bias. And again, it can lead them off track. Because in fact, my friends, our mind, our intellect, was not given to us to see evil. It was given to us to see the order of things. To see the order of things. That is wisdom. And of course, as a consequence of seeing the order, well, then we will recognize disorder. We will, as a consequence. But there is a richness, there is a depth 
there is a beauty to God's order, which most of us have just begun to scratch the surface of understanding. And that is the worthy object of our mind. That is what a thinking Catholic begins to discover more and more. And again, it's not a question that they won't see evil anymore. No, they'll see it. They'll see it in its true degree, in its true stature, and in its true context, which, of course, that context will always include God and his plan. So, no matter where you are in your path, no matter where you are in your stage of progress, what do we need to do? Because we've just learned that there are moments in our life when because we've become accustomed to God dealing with us in a certain way, we might in fact veer off the track when God changes or even when the normal development of our soul brings about a turn in the path. All right. So what do we do? Well, the good news is, my friends, we need to do then what we need to do always, no matter where we are. The program is always the same, in fact. We submit to God's benevolent order. Because there is another characteristic of that order that I haven't mentioned yet. The most beautiful, perhaps, is that it's benevolent. The most consoling, perhaps, is that it is indestructible indestructible. It's not going anywhere. No matter how evil the world may become, God's benevolent order will always be intact. It will always be life-giving. It will always be there for us. And I'll give you an example of of why that must be the case. Let's, Let's say, look, of all the kinds of disorder. Let's take the worst kind of disorder and show that it doesn't change anything. Let us take sin. Again, if you've been on retreat, you know. Sin, we sometimes even say on retreat, it's the only evil. That's a somewhat of an exaggeration, but it is certainly in a class all by itself in terms of the kinds of evils and disorders there are in the world. So let's take sin. A sin may become very popular. It may become quasi-universal so that everyone is doing it. How does that affect the moral order? Well, it doesn't change it at all. It's still going to be a sin. However popular or quasi-universal it may be, it's still going to be a sin. It's not going to sort of mutate what is right and wrong into something new. And we know that. We are the very ones who say that. But think about that. The moral order is completely intact, no matter how sin may abound. Okay. So let's say we have someone perhaps has been sinning a great deal, swept away by the current of sin in the world, And then they have that moment of conversion and they go to confession. 
Does it work? Does it work for them? Yes. Always? Yes. They have to bring to that sacrament the dispositions that that sacrament is set up to require, designed to require, and then it works. Always. But what if they've been sinning a very long time? What if they... It doesn't matter. The sacraments work. They're part of God's benevolent order. And they always work, as long as they're used properly. And you know, before that person could have gone to confession to receive the grace of God through the sacrament, there was a whole path of graces, a whole chain of graces, each one picking up where the other one left off, all perfectly designed to bring that soul the next step towards receiving the grace of God again. We could not, in our intelligence or ingenuity, possibly have designed a path more perfect than the one that God has designed to bring that soul to repentance. And let us suppose for a moment, worst case scenario, that soul does not repent. The soul refuses that path. Nevertheless, the sins that that person has committed, although unfortunately they will be the cause of that soul's damnation, there are other souls, souls who love God. And those sins will contribute to the sanctification of those other souls. Because for those who love God, all things work to the good. So you see, the order of God's providence is indestructible. Reflect on this, please, my friends. Please. Because we need need a lot of confidence in this order. Which means, if we were to translate that perhaps into the, the language of virtues, we need hope. But of course you know well, I hope that when we speak of hope as a virtue, it it means something a bit different than what we mean in everyday language. So I can say, I hope you understand. And that means, I'm not really sure that you do, but I'm hoping that you do. But the virtue of hope isn't like that. The virtue of hope is based on the certainty of faith. It's a certainty. I am convinced, I am sure, that God's benevolent order is there. So we need that hope. And we also need, practically speaking, not only hope, but humility. Because remember, connecting with God's benevolent order means submitting to it. Not making up our own path. Not trying to be creative with the things of God, but submitting to the things of God. There is more wisdom in them than we could ever hope to come up with on our own. Hope and humility. And I think if you reflect on the people you have known who have gone off track, you know, I, when I go home and visit my, my family, 
our parish and where I live is, is, has grown about fourfold since I first went to the seminary. It's, it's grown very, very much. And yet, there are people I grew up with, people I served Mass with, people I sang in the choir with, who are gone. They're gone. And if you reflect on the people you've known who've gone off the track, I think you'll see, it's my own reflection, but I think it's common enough, they go off track either because of their pride or because of their fear. Pride or fear. And for that, humility and hope. And be be on your guard because your experience of the Christian life is going to change. It is going to change. There's going to be moments when it's easy to trust in the benevolent order of God. You can almost see it. And then there's going to be moments when your consolation dries up and you can't see it. And it's hard to hope. A Catholic's way of thinking, again, thinking like a Catholic, is is to put the objective above the subjective, always. I do have a certain subjective experience of living the Christian life. It's true. But that doesn't define the reality of the Christian life. My experience is going to change. The order of things is not. So my friends, when you go to communion today, I really encourage you to ask with confidence, because this Holy Communion, this sacrament to feed our soul, that too is not only part, but a very large part of God's benevolent order. So ask, Lord, give me this hope. You know how easily I get discouraged. You know how easily I get confused. And right now, for example, my consolations are very small. So I'm at risk, and you know that. So give me this hope and give me this humility. Make me realize that my greatness depends on my cooperating with the plan of God, not coming up with my own. Give me this hope. Give me this humility. My friends, the bottom line is this. If we are even reasonably savvy, and hopefully we are more and more savvy, at understanding the depth, the riches, the beauty of the order of of things that God has created around us to feed our souls. There's a lot there, and we don't know most of it yet. But even if we're only reasonably savvy at recognizing it, and even if we're only reasonably consistent at submitting to it, because none of us will be perfectly consistent because we are weak and we are sinners, and God has already allowed for that. He's already planned for that. But if we are reasonably consistent in submitting to that order, then we are going to go to heaven. And there's nothing the devil will be able to do about it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.